Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 31, we read, And he, that is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again, he spoke this word openly. Then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. In Mark chapter 8, we have seen the provision of the servant as he feeds the multitudes in verses 1 through 10. We've seen the provocation of the servant when the religious leaders... Demand a miraculous sign from him in verses 11 through 13. We saw the power of the servant as he heals the blind man in Bethsaida in verses 22 through 26. We witnessed the prompting of the servant as he asks, as Jesus asks his disciples the question concerning his identity. Who do men say that I am? And a lot of popular notions were going around. John the Baptist, Elijah. In verses 27 through 30, now comes the prediction of the servant. Jesus will predict his rejection, his suffering, his death, his resurrection in verses 31 through 33. And again, remember, remember the context. Jesus has been asked concerning his identity. Peter, under the inspiration of the Father, says, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, you are the Son of the living God, in verse 29. Most people don't object to the idea of a Savior or of a Messiah. People are on board with a deliverer, a provider, a protector. People want leaders who will provide a kind of utopian paradise, a society where social justice reigns and provision is made for everyone. People take no offense at a Messiah who keeps us warm and keeps us fed and keeps us housed and clothed and entertained and enlightened. The problem, of course, were the religious leaders and the scribes and the Pharisees, they were expecting a Messiah who wouldn't interfere. Others were expecting a Messiah who would deliver them from the social and the political and the economic subjugation of Rome. The Jews were expecting a Messiah who would defeat their enemies. And for many people, that's exactly the kind of Messiah they want. A Messiah who will defeat the enemy of poverty, defeat the enemy of of economic sluggishness or social injustice. As a matter of fact, the problem, the problem was the Messiah we want versus the Messiah we have. And in this brief passage, a special contrast is drawn between the revelation of God's Messiah by the Messiah in verse 31 and the revelation of man's Messiah given in verses 32 and 33. What does Jesus reveal? 
He reveals a Messiah who is rejected, a Messiah who suffers, a Messiah who dies, a Messiah who rises from the dead. We expect in the world temptation and tests from the world and the flesh and the devil. We rarely expect that the source of testing is going to come from the people closest to us and the people that we care about. The Apostle John would later write in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, This was the purpose of the appearing of the Son of God, to undo the work of the devil. And what was that work? Remember, the devil was a deceiver who deceived our mother and father so that they would rebel against God and the plan of God and the will of God and the purpose of God. It was the purpose of the devil to divide and estrange us from God and keep us estranged from God. And so the Son of God appears so that we could experience grace and mercy and forgiveness and hope and life. And so the revelation begins in verse 31. And he, that is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. We come to a new stage, by the way, in the teaching ministry of Jesus. A year has gone by. A second year has gone by. A third year, all of a sudden, is about to dawn. And Jesus has only weeks to live. Jesus will instruct them. What kind of Messiah is God's Messiah? The popular conceptions of a political and social and economic liberator is about to be confronted by the Messiah himself. And if you look at the beginning of verse 31, at the expression, and he, that is Jesus, began to teach them. In Matthew's parallel account, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, we read, from that time forth, that is, from the time that Peter made the amazing confession that Jesus is unequivocally, undoubtedly the Messiah, beyond question the Messiah. Jesus is the predicted Messiah. That something significant happens. Jesus will make clear the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, be killed, and three days rise again. And the expression must suffer is also important. It's important because it's remarkably strong in the original language. Must is a constraint. Must is a necessity. Must is something that's a necessary event. And people have always asked that question why must he suffer? Why must he be rejected? Why must he die? Why? Well, the answer in part, God is love and man is corrupt. God is holy. Man is fallen. God is righteous. Man is unrighteous. God's son will suffer and die and rise from the dead. And the Lord God must provide salvation for man and justice for himself. And the penalty of sin has to be paid because the Bible says the soul that sins, it shall surely die. And so the ideal man must die. 
A man with no sin. He must not only die, but he has to die an ideal death so that sin can be forgiven. There's only one ideal man, and that's Jesus. And there's only one person who lived a perfect life in keeping with God's commands, the ideal life, in an ideal righteous way. He must die, providing the world an ideal death. And he has to rise from the dead, providing an ideal resurrection. And so the idea of suffering many things isn't just simply the peripheral sufferings that will surround his rejection and arrest and torture and crucifixion. Listen to the words of Jesus himself. The son of man must suffer many things. This is Jesus's favorite title for himself, by the way. He calls himself the son of man. Because he is a man. He is God who acquires a second nature and he identifies with you. There's a reason why this is his favorite title, because he's going to identify with you in your circumstances. He's going to identify with you in your life and the very real life that you live and the very real limitations that you experience and the real pain that you experience and the real suffering that you experience. He is the son of man and he must suffer many things like what? He has a disadvantage that you don't have. Most of you won't know the time of your death and the circumstance of your death. And it's a blessing, by the way. You're not supposed to know. If you knew that you were going to die tomorrow, what would you do differently? If Whitney Houston knew a week ago that she was going to die yesterday... Do you think her life might be lived a little bit differently the last week? What if you knew, what if you knew, what if you knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that the circumstances of your death are laid out before you and not just any death, but a criminal death and the most humiliating kind of a death? Don't you think that knowing that you are going to die at a specific place and at a specific time and under a specific circumstance would cause you to avoid that place and that time and that circumstance? But Jesus isn't going to avoid it. He knows exactly how he's going to die. And you're kidding yourself if you don't think that the knowledge and the weight of that understanding was upon his heart every moment of every day. He will suffer at the hands of Satan. He will suffer at the hands of his enemies. He will suffer at the hands of his friends. You expect it from enemies. And you expect it from Satan, but you don't expect it from your friends. The Bible says his face will be marred in Isaiah 52, 14. His back will be lacerated in John 19, 1. His brow will be scarred, it said in Matthew 27, 29. His hands and his feet will be pierced, it says in Psalm 22, 16. And he will be spat upon and he will be mocked and he will be humiliated, it says in Psalm 22, 12 and Psalm 22, 13. He will suffer. He will be betrayed he will be forsaken and he will suffer in his soul the bible says he would he was made for sin for us in second corinthians 5 21 who knew no sin and right when you thought that the suffering would end it continues even now what's the source of jesus's suffering 
right at this very moment. Me. And you. The Bible says we being many are one body. We're joined and we're fitted together and make no mistake about it. He loves you and he thinks about you and he knows what's going on inside of your mind. And he knows what's going on inside of your heart. He knows. He knows what's going on. As a matter of fact, later on, after he rose from the dead and Saul was persecuting the church and he was afflicting them and torturing them and incarcerating them and in sometimes killing them Jesus himself from heaven said to Saul 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 why are you persecuting me because every time you cry every time your heart is broken every time you're isolated every time you're persecuted every time you're hounded so is he Dietrich Bonhoeffer was executed by the Germans on charges of treason and plotting to kill Hitler. He wrote, a Christian is someone who shares the sufferings of God in this world. A Christian isn't simply a person who acknowledges the historical information surrounding the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. A Christian is a person who so closely identifies with Jesus that his life becomes their life and his love becomes their love and his suffering becomes their suffering. In Hebrews 5.8, we read that even though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And the writer points out his identity. He is the son. He is the son of God and he is the son from heaven, but he is the son of man. And he'll leave the presence of God in heaven with all of the splendor and all of the glory and all of the privilege and all of the praise and all of the honor. And he'll humble himself and come in the fashion as a human being. He is rightly the son of man. And we see the prediction of his suffering and the resurrection in light of the past. But for the disciples, for the disciples, think about this for just a moment. They expect the Messiah who's going to give them freedom. And when Jesus announces rejection and he announces suffering and he announces death and he even announces a resurrection, he, that he'll be raised again. You've got to understand that they have been they've had experience with with people coming back to life. They've had experiences with people coming back to life, but never with an experience of someone coming back to life, never to die ever again. And something happened in the brains of the disciples. They hear rejection and they hear suffering and they hear death. And it's as if everything goes blank. And they're thinking. This is a horrible campaign slogan, Jesus. Vote for me and you'll be rejected, suffer, die, and come back to life. We know that you're not polling well in Jerusalem. The religious leaders don't like you. Okay, let's be blunt. They hate you. They've already attempted to kill you and they're going to attempt to kill you again. But you're not doing too bad in the Galilee. Common people, ordinary people, poor people, they love you. And if we can get your message out up to Lebanon and down to Egypt and east of Babylon, I'm sure that your popularity will take off. 
But a rejected Messiah and a suffering Messiah and a murdered Messiah wasn't a part of their plan. Jesus has dropped hints, not so subtle hints, in John 2.19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. John 3.14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. John 6.51, I am the living bread which came down from heaven and if any man eats this bread, he shall live forever and the bread that I give is my flesh. And I will give my life for the world. And so what are they thinking? This is a crazy plan. Rejection, suffering, incarceration, torture. More torture. Death. Resurrection, what does that even mean? Jesus will be hated by his enemies and he will be misunderstood by his friends. And the ministry of Jesus has been marked by a dynamic power and it's been marked by moral perfection. It's been marked by deep love. It's been marked by profound humility. And then the revelation of God in Christ is that the path of service and the path of redemption and the path of forgiveness and the path of reconciliation, the path lies in rejection and suffering and death and a glorious resurrection. But they don't understand about resurrection. They understand about rejection and suffering and death. F.W. Grant writes, quote, the heart of service would be revealed in sacrifice. But there's another invitation. The other invitation is for you to ask yourself that question. What do you believe about suffering? I know I don't like it. How do you feel about rejection? I'm not good with that. Suffering, rejection, and sacrifice. I think we made a mistake. Let's go to the name it and claim it church. Let's confess prosperity and healing. Let's always have and never not have. Let's always experience pleasure and never pain. Clearly, people do sometimes suffer because they're bad. You might have even came up with that question. When I asked you what you believed about suffering, you might have said it shouldn't happen and it shouldn't happen to me. You might even go so far as to say, I'm willing to concede that Jesus has to be rejected and Jesus has to suffer and Jesus has to die. But I don't think that means that I have to be rejected and I have to suffer and I have to die. Well, what do you believe about suffering then? Tell me. Tell me what it is that you believe. Well, bad people suffer. Well, let me ask you a question. Was Jesus a bad person? No. Was Jesus a perfect person? Yes. Is it possible to be a good person and even a perfect person and you still suffer? Clearly, that's part of the point. People do not always suffer because they're bad. Suffering isn't always linked to what you've done or what you haven't done. Elisha Coles writes, sin could not die unless Christ died. Christ could not die without being made sin, nor could he die, but sin must die with him. You see, because whatever 
salvation means and whatever redemption means and whatever forgiveness means, it's going to require that Jesus live the perfect life that you couldn't live and die the death that you deserve in order to come back to life. It was the poet and hymn writer. Catherine Agnes May Kelly, who said, oh, make me understand it. Help me to take it in what it means to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. So we're asked. What does it mean? What does it mean to suffer and die? And we find tucked away in verse 31 a list of those who oppose Jesus. The elders, the scribes, the chief priests, the religious hierarchy, the religious leaders, the religious elite, the professional religious people want to find him and shut him up. And if he doesn't shut up, they want to kill him. The rejection of the Messiah was prefigured in Psalm 22, 1, when, he, when the psalmist wrote, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from me, heeding my groans? Isaiah wrote, He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. John writes in John chapter 1, verse 11, He comes into his own, he comes to his own nation, and he's not welcome. The Bible says, They didn't receive him. They rejected him. A.W. Tozier writes, To accept Christ is to know the meaning of the words, As he is, so are we in this world. As he is, how is he? Accepted? Rejected. Suffer? Pleasure. Sacrifice? Selfishness. Death, life, but there's a glorious resurrection. It's like a mist. It's like a cloud. It's like an illness that sometimes creeps up on us. The rejection and the pain and the suffering and the misunderstanding, it begins to cloud our thinking. It begins to numb our minds. It begins to pelt against us. And through the fog, it's difficult to see that through the suffering, there is at the end of the tunnel a glorious life and a new life. In Christ. And so Peter. In verse 32. It says he spoke this word openly. And Peter took him aside. And began to rebuke him. Don't miss that little sentence. Right at the beginning of verse 32. He spoke this word. Note the word is singular. Which means the message. It's the message. It's the message of sacrifice. It's the message of suffering. It's the message of of rejection. It's the message of death. It's the message of resurrection. He speaks it openly. The idea is important. It's from the noun Parisia, which Arndt and Gingrich defines as outspokenness, frankness, plainness of speech that conceals nothing and passes over nothing. The implication is there's no parable here. There's no secret. There's nothing hidden. I'm going to talk plainly about 
rejection and suffering and death and a resurrection. And when used in the dative case as it is here, it's used as an adverb. Hits is translated openly. But since Jesus is sharing the information with the disciples, with his apostles, it's the plain truth about rejection. It's the plain truth about suffering. It's the plain truth about death. No wonder the NIV translates this plainly. So how are we to think about what we're reading? Jesus is making it plain. I'm going to be rejected. We're not good with that. I'm going to suffer. Time out. Time out. If you are rejected and if you suffer and if you die... What's going to happen to the Jesus movement? What's going to happen to us? Remember, the rabbis have for years taught that the Messiah is going to come. And we even sang about it. A glorious Messiah coming in triumph. We want this glorious Messiah to come triumphantly, destroy enemies, right wrong, establish justice, and rule and reign forever. It's not wrong for you to want that. And it's not wrong for you to desire that. And guess what? It's going to happen. But for Jesus and his disciples, in order for there to be forgiveness, in order for there to be hope, in order for there to be cleansing from sin and reconciliation to the Father, it was going to require something else. And you can imagine... Jesus makes plain the fact of his death. He makes plain the meaning of his death. I want you to think about this for a moment. Jesus makes plain, I'm going to be rejected and I'm going to explain the rejection. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to explain the suffering. I'm going to die and I'm going to explain the death. I'm going to come back to life and I'm going to explain what that means. And they don't get it. Because the carnal man can't receive the things of the Spirit and rebels against the idea of sacrifice and rejection and death. And he's going to reveal about a death on a cross. And in a few moments, he's not only going to reveal the fact of his death, he's going to reveal the method of his death. And when you're a Christian, when you identify with Jesus... There are two words that should never be used in the same sentence. No, Lord. Do you see the oxymoronic nature of that statement? No. I know you've, ex- you've explained about rejection and you've explained about suffering and you've explained about death and you've explained about coming to life, but that's not the kind of Christianity I signed up for. What kind of Christianity did you sign up for? You know, the one where I, my sins are forgiven and I get to go to heaven. Okay, what else? Well, that was it. I thought that was the beginning and the middle and the end of Christianity. It never occurred to you, not even once, that to know him and to love him and to serve him and identify with him the way he's identified with you, that it might involve Rejection, sacrifice, suffering, the possibility of death, a cold wave of protest begins to grip the heart of at least one disciple. 
Peter, look what it says. Peter took him aside. You may not understand what you're reading. Because you read Peter took him aside and you may have a picture of the great big fisherman very gently putting his arm around Jesus and going, can we talk? Time out. Jesus, we need to have a little chat. We need to have a little come to Jesus conversation. The expression took him aside is pros. Labomenos. You may not know what that means. It means to grab hold of or to seize. The picture in the ancient world was this is a word that you would use to describe someone when you were restraining them. I've used this, this illustration over and over again, that when a police officer uses his mouth and he says, I need you to stop, he only has two more weapons in his arsenal. One is a stick and the other is a, is a gun. And when, when the police officer says, please stop, and the person refuses to stop, sometimes they have to restrain him. And this is exactly the picture that is given in the text. The implication is the massive fisherman grabs him and takes him and it says, and begins to rebuke him. The word is very strong, epitiman. The language suggests not a casual recommendation. It's not a suggestion. It's a forcible attempt to keep him from doing what he says he's going to do. It's Peter's way of grabbing him and trying to talk some sense into him that a suffering servant, a suffering Messiah, a rejected Messiah, and a dying Messiah is repulsive and disgusting and unacceptable. Let's be clear here. Peter is attempting to argue against a cross. He wants Christianity, but no cross. He's urging a power Messiah, a regal Messiah, a triumphant Messiah, a conquering Messiah, an enthroned Messiah. He's urging Jesus to follow human schemes and human expectations. In a sense, what Peter is doing is he's saying, I need you to reject God's plan, and I need you to reject God's way, and I need you to reject God's purpose, and we need to come up with an alternative. Because this one isn't working. And in the process, Peter urging Jesus to do exactly what Satan wants becomes in part a way of acknowledging what Satan has done earlier. Remember, Satan has tested Jesus in the wilderness. And remember what the test was. You can be king without a cross. And here's all you have to do. It's simple. All you have to do is just bow a knee and tell everyone, I'm not so bad. Just say, you're cool. I'm cool with that. But Jesus won't bow the knee. He said, there's only one God and you should worship him and, and him only. And remember, Satan tempts him to compromise the word of God. To undermine the word of God. Ultimately, the plan of Satan was to compromise, undermine the word of God, undermine the will of God, undermine the plan of God. It doesn't have to be bad. You don't have to die. A cross 
doesn't have to be a part of your future. Can you imagine restraining and rebuking Jesus? I want you to just picture in your mind, just for a moment, you grab Jesus by the shoulders and you say to him, you've got it all wrong. See, you're laughing at the absurdity of it. But we do it every day, don't we? We grab him and we say, Rejection. I don't want rejection to be a part of my life and I don't want suffering to be a part of my life and I don't want death to be a part of my life. And Jesus is going to say, if you don't want rejection and suffering and death to be a part of your life, you probably also don't want resurrection to be a part of your life. But there will be. There will be a glorious resurrection. Peter's behavior mirrors the foolish heart of most people. Let's just for a moment pause and give him the benefit of the doubt, just for a moment. Let's just for a moment ask a different question. Is it possible that Peter genuinely loves Jesus? Does he genuinely care about him? When someone that you love and you care about says, I'm about to suffer and I'm about to be rejected and I'm about to die, it makes perfect sense for you to say, I don't want you to be rejected and I don't want you to suffer and I don't want you to die. Isn't it possible? Isn't it possible? Particularly if anyone has ever said to you, I wish I was dead. And you say, oh, please, no. No, that's not the way to go. That's not the way out. That's not the satisfying solution. That's not the way to deal with this problem. That's not the way. Peter, I'm going to suggest to you, is filled with good motives and good intentions. Even though his statement flies in the face of God and the will of God, he is zealous for God, but it's mistaken and ignorant. He doesn't understand the will of God. He doesn't comprehend the plan of God. He has no idea that God is planning to save the world through the death of his son. And every once in a while, the people you care the most about has no idea what the plan of God and the will of God is for your life. They have no idea. Because they don't understand the plan of God and the will of God for their own life. They have no idea that God loves them. They have no idea that God's plan and a purpose for them is to enter into a relationship with them. They have no idea that God loves them and wants to forgive them and cleanse them from their sin and give them the opportunity to know him personally and live in heaven forever. They have no idea. And so Peter rebels, recoils, rejects the idea of a suffering servant. He recoils, rejects, rebels against a servant who demands self-sacrifice and self-denial of his followers. He makes it clear that Jesus understands that this is unacceptable to him and repulsive to him. As a matter of fact, you don't have to die, Jesus. Why don't you just tell people that they can love each other and be aware of each other and, and have positive self-esteem? I've got a better idea. Instead of a gospel where somebody has to die, let's promote a gospel where everybody gets exactly what they want. 
And they get it every time. Tell them that they're the head and not the tail. We live in a world where even followers of Jesus believe that the path and the plan of God is indulgent love. They have in their mind that God is an indulgent grandparent, only concerned with the happiness of the grandchild. And I have to admit that I am an indulgent grandparent. You know, under most circumstances, the grandchildren can't jump up and down on the furniture, but not at my house. Most children have discipline and rules and direction. I am such a terrible grandparent. But here's the point. It makes perfect sense that a grandparent wants grandchildren not to suffer and not to sacrifice and not to have to give of themselves. And there are people who feel exactly the same way. Why do you believe in a Jesus who has to die on a cross? For the person who says, let's be done with suffering and let's be done with sacrifice and let's be done with rejection and let's be done with self-denial. How can a suffering, sacrificial, self-denying Savior Result in the forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to God. And there are literally millions of people who don't want that kind of a Jesus. But they also are ignorant of the gospel. You know, if you ask a normal person, what do you think is the biggest problem in your life? A normal person will say, my husband, my wife. My boss, my kids, my health, my poverty, my circumstances, my government, amen, my rejection, my sacrifice, my pain, my suffering, my impending death. And when you suggest even for a moment that the problem is sin and that the solution is a savior, they balk. Look what it says in verse 33. But when he had turned around and looked at his disciples again, you might be tempted to overlook that one sentence. But let me help bring it to life for you. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples. For what reason? Because he's got to figure out what to do with the big fishermen in front of his peers. Um, How he's going to deal with this usurpation of his authority. How is he going to deal with the sentence? I'm going to suggest to you that Jesus looks at the disciples as if to remind himself and Peter... That this rejection and the suffering and the cross and the death and the resurrection is for them. He turned around and looked at them the same way that he turns around and he looks through time and space and he looks at you and he sees you and he sees your life and he sees your circumstances and he sees your heart and he sees the past and he sees the present and he sees the future and he sees into heaven and you have to be there. And you're not there. Unless he's rejected. Unless he suffers. Unless he dies. And unless he rises from the dead. 
There is no second plan. There is no third plan. There is no other alternative. There is no other option. He turns around and he looks at his disciples. And if they're going to be saved, he is going to have to rebuke Peter. And look what it says. Get behind me, Satan, for you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. The word Satan means adversary. Well, does this mean that Peter is demon-possessed? Does this mean that he's controlled by Satan? Peter's words do suggest that Jesus avoid the trouble and embrace the ease. In other words, what Peter is mouthing is the same words that were mouthed by Satan. And when you mouth those words, when you repeat those words... When you repeat the words, you don't need God and you don't need Jesus and you don't need a Savior. Or if you need a Jesus and you need a God, you certainly don't need a God and a Savior who dies on a cross. So what do you do with the rejection and what do you do with the suffering and what do you do with the death? You make sure you understand that it's the prelude to a glorious resurrection. And in a sense, Jesus is accusing Peter of adopting a satanic mindset. In what way? Satan constantly tempts and tests us to disobey God. And if that doesn't work, to partially obey God, not realizing or that you're going to come to grips with the fact that incomplete obedience is total disobedience. And so sometimes your husband and sometimes your wife and sometimes even your own children and sometimes the people closest to you will say to you, you don't need to honor God and you don't need to obey God and you don't need to discover the plan of God and you don't need to discover the will of God. Especially if the plan and the will includes suffering and rejection and death. Because how could that possibly be a part of God's plan? You need a quiet path. You need a respectable path. You need a path where nobody gets hurt. Even you. Jesus is being tempted to reject God's will for his life. The source, not the world, not the flesh, in part the devil, but it's a friend, someone close to him, someone who loves him. You would think that testing would never come from the people closest to you, people who gave birth to you, people who have taken care of you. You know, we all have a Satan. We all have an adversary. And sometimes that adversary will take different forms. Sometimes the form will be misguided zeal. And sometimes it will be laziness. And sometimes it will be all kinds of different disguises. But here's what the message is always. Ignore God's plan for your life. Ignore God's will for your life. Ignore God's future that he has for you. And it's going to take a supernatural act of courage for you to ask and answer the question. What is God's plan and what is God's will and what does God want for my future? 
I need to remind you of something that our friend Peter has a radical change of heart after the death and the resurrection of Jesus. As a matter of fact, if you want to know his testimony, it's found in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. If you turn there just rather quickly in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In verses 18 and 19, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition of your fathers. Chapter 2, verse 24 who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes we are healed. In verse 18 of chapter 3, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and being made alive in the spirit. He is going to experience a total transformation as he understands that rejection and suffering and death and a resurrection is going to mean the difference between hope and no hope. What do you learn? Don't despise the rebuke of the Lord. When Jesus says you're going in the wrong direction. Remember what the Bible says. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And there's no more faithful wounds than the ones that Jesus inflicts. Make no mistake about it. If you're being spanked by Jesus. He loves you. The Bible says. That the kindness person who asks you to do something that's against God's plan and against God's purpose and against God's will is to be rejected. Peter is short-sighted. Peter genuinely cares about Jesus. But he has the audacity to think that he can help Jesus or save Jesus. And I'm going to ask you maybe the most difficult question of all. Who do you think knows better, Peter or Jesus? It's Jesus, isn't it? Who do you think knows better, your well-meaning family and friends or the word of God and the will of God and the plan of God? You should ask yourself that question. What is God's plan for my life? What is God's will for my life? Are well-meaning people trying to keep you from God's plan or God's will, but they don't want you to suffer too much. They don't want you to get hurt. They don't want you to take risks. Marjorie Hewitt Sukaki put it this way, quote, The edges of God are tragedy, and the depths of God are joy and beauty and resurrection and life. Resurrection answers crucifixion. Life answers death, unquote. Rejection, but acceptance by God. Suffering, it's light, and it's momentary, and it's temporal. Death, it's a momentary darkness. It will come and it will go. Resurrection, it's forever. 
It's life forever. It's love forever. It's forgiveness forever. It's a right relationship with God forever. In the next few verses, Jesus is going to talk about the cost of discipleship. It's not for the immature. It's not for the faint of heart. It's not for the person who embraces a Jesus who never makes you suffer, who never has you experience rejection, who never invites you to die or come back to life. You might want to skip next week. But if you're bold and you're brave and you want to know about the plan of God and the will of God and the future that God has for you, show up. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that we live in a world where people don't want a Messiah who makes demands. But Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, Lord, you will speak to our hearts. That just as Jesus is the Son of Man because he identifies with us, that we will identify with Jesus Christ, the King of Heaven and the Son of God. We will identify with him in his rejection and in his suffering and in his death and in his resurrection, knowing, knowing, knowing that if we're willing to identify with him here, he's willing to identify with us there. That if we're willing to live for him here, we can live with him there. If we're willing to live for him here, we can live forever. And Lord, I pray for the person who knows it's hard to maybe give up the one friend that they have or the one future that they think that they have. But Lord, we know that when we know you and when we love you and when we choose to obey you, that everything's going to turn out fine. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.